From Relay FM, this is Connected, episode number 48. Today's show is brought to you by Harry's, an exceptional shave at a fraction of the price, Squarespace, Build It Beautiful, and Igloo, an internet you'll actually like. My name is Mike Hurley, and I'm joined by Mr. Stephen Hackett. Hello, Michael Hurley. Hello, Stephen Hackett. How are you? Uh, I'm good. Uh, I'm being blown away by a thunderstorm, so we'll see um, how long I can go before the floodwaters rise. But for now, I'm okay. Very thundery. Good. It's very thundery outside. That started going on. So That's an official weather as uh, recognized by the Meteorological Society. Yes, thundery. Um, I mean, you might not have heard that word if you didn't. If you don't have a degree in, in uh, weathermanship. Meteorology. Weathermanship, did Weather- you say? Weathermanship. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, no Federico this week. We're, we miss our friend. Do you guys get thunderstorms? I know it rains, but do you get like full-out storms? We get thunderstorms, but they won't be like the ones that you get. But there is thunder and there is lightning. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, you know, every now and then we have like a bad one. But again, uh, our now and then bad ones is maybe like a, probably like a medium one for you, I reckon. Gotcha. It's like basically in the UK, we get all the weather, but none of it is really serious. But we get all of it where not everywhere in the world gets all the different kinds of weather. We get them all, but we just get them all in like annoying, annoyingly annoying amounts because they're neither exciting or interesting. They're just all there. It's kind yeah. of uh, low-level uh, annoyances as opposed to exciting events. Exactly. Like, nothing, none of the weather is ever exciting, um, and which makes it all annoying. <laughs> this is, so this has been a, a good segment on our show. I would like to issue a personal thank you to the listeners of this show. Um, if you remember last week, uh, I spoke. we spoke about you and your t-shirts, and I challenged the listeners of this show to to buy t-shirts to take the 512 Pixels t-shirt over the 211 mark that was set by the Connected t-shirt, uh, which was met by the next morning, which was awesome. Uh, and currently, you have sold 274 t-shirts, which is a ludicrous amount of t-shirts to sell <laughs> uh, with a little computer on them. It's exciting. So thank you for everyone who has ordered. If you have not ordered, you have a couple of days left. Please go and uh, and do so. It's uh, it's a huge help, and just it's encouraging to uh, log into Teespring and, and see those those orders come in. So it's cool. I uh, ordered a long sleeve. I bought a uh, short sleeve. I didn't think I'd want the long sleeve. Then I looked at the long sleeve and I was like, oh, I haven't. I want one of those. I don't have any long sleeve t shirts. So now I have two separate orders with your little logo on them on the way, which awesome. I think will bring me up to four uh, Firetoil Pixels t-shirts in total. Yeah, because this is the, uh, the third one. I've done two in previous years, so mm-hmm. but none of them this successful. So uh, thank you uh, to everyone. It's really great. I would hazard a guess to say that this, if not already, uh, will sell out both of those ones combined, you know? Oh, you yeah, it has. It has. It has already. <laughs> yeah. Okay, great. Uh, it has. So uh, so our follow-up this week is really pretty epic. Uh, this, this is one of the greatest pieces of follow-up any podcast has ever received, not just Alice. So Federico <laughs> just started texting me very excitedly the other night. He said he was just saying, like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, you're not going to this email I got. I'm like, well, send it to me. So he sends it to me. And uh, if you remember last week, we were speaking about uh, weather again, as we now do at the beginning of the show. And he made some claims, Mike, that were quite 
frankly ridiculous that because you were further north and he was closer to the equator, uh, the sun that you received is more triangular in nature, uh, which is just yeah. uh, nonsense. <laughs> it was one, I mean, I was only going to take him so far, <laughs> you know, and I was like, I can't, I can't yeah. keep going down this. I can't keep having this conversation. So I decided to, to just settle up and move on. I mean, it's, it's, that's what you, when you're confronted with someone who's a crazy person, you just have to sometimes let him go. Uh, so we Could get you, you please give the follow up before you say where it's come from? Yes. So the uh, that's a good that's a good thing. So the the follow up email reads as follow follows: the apparent shape of the sun is independent of latitude, but the curvature of the Earth far from the equator means that the sun's rays are spread over a larger area. Makes sense, right? So um, the sun is still the same shape that it is always. That doesn't matter, but the the amount of uh, sun, the sun's rays themselves are, you know, they're they're spread out because they're not they're not hitting at a, such a direct angle, but they're sort of um, glancing off, if you will, uh, over a bigger area. It makes sense if you hold a. I um, think of it as kind of like skimming a stone. I yeah. know it's nothing like that, but that's what my brain imagines. Yeah, this person's going to email you now, uh, so you can like, you can't skim the sun. <laughs> so if you hold up like a, a ball, like in one hand, like a tennis ball or basketball or something, and how to hold a flashlight, you can see this effect where. Um, the the sun is more direct in a straight angle, you know, the light, and then it sort of disperses. It's the word I was looking for earlier. Uh, the further from the center you get. This is a great email because Federico was wrong, but it's also a great email because uh, it was written by a listener named Fraser, who is employed at the European Space Agency, <laughs> uh, which for uh, Americans is basically NASA in Europe. Very similar. The two agencies work together in a lot of stuff. Uh, so the ESA, Didn't the ESA do that slingshot thing. Uh, yes, I think so. Depending on the slingshot yeah. thing you're talking about, there was a, there was a thing uh, uh, some time ago that the ESA did. I, uh, this is annoying to me that I can't remember what it was, but I just remember it at the time being like, "Haha, we can't do something," you know. I, I googled the ESA slingshot. And it did not return anything super helpful. But yeah, ESA does yep. a lot of really cool stuff. And uh, I think follow-up is probably um, probably over now since we had the European Space Agency weigh in on a very important topic. So uh, thank you for uh, the feedback. And it was uh, uh, a proud moment for the three of us, I think. Yep. Most definitely. It's just a fantastic piece of, of follow-up to receive. Yep. Uh, so we're going to follow that. Uh, we should have ended follow-up with that because the next one doesn't seem as exciting anymore. Um, but this is a link over on Mac Stories uh, from Federico. Uh, turns out that someone has created a Beats 1 schedule. So we were speaking about uh, there's no real great way to see like what's coming up, like who's on air in two hours at Beats 1. And uh, Mark Bouquet has written an unofficial calendar of, uh, for this very problem. So you can subscribe to it and you can get it on your phone and on your watch. And um, it's uh, it's pretty cool. It is user created and maintained, but if you know Mark stays on top of it, this should be a pretty good resource, right? Yeah. Um, see, this comes also meets with, I received some tweets from a guy called Benji earlier who's at the rumbler on twitter and he was basically doing some digging and found out that apple has a heroku api um and that this that basically a lot of the apple music stuff is built on 
that there is there's all this crazy stuff going on that there is apparently Apple's Tumblr uses Heroku, AWS Cloud and React.js to create their own Tumblr page. Okay. So um and then Mark Bouquet replied to Benji and said that was where he got that information from um to create this this calendar that he's made. So but the problem is from my perspective is is twofold. Uh Mark's calendar is user-created and maintained. Whilst I have faith in Mark's abilities, uh, Apple could change things, right? Or could add a new show in, or, you know, anything could happen that he doesn't know about, um, and or his system isn't pulling in, or whatever, or isn't updating correctly. Uh, but also, more more of a problem for me is, this is, I don't want this in my calendar. <laughs> like I want to know what's coming and I want to be notified about things, but I don't want it in my calendar as a thing. Hmm. Yeah, it's... Yeah, I mean, I think if it was just better better done in the app, maybe in a way where you could, like we talked about, favorite something or have an option for push notification for music. So you're still alert, you still know what's going on, but it's not necessarily... Filling up your Fantastical. You know, every time you open it, it's just all beats one stuff. Um, so I think there's a happy medium between where we are now and what Marcus created. I think it's really great. And I think a lot of people find it useful. But uh, I would, I think what we initially wished for, I think, is still something that they should do. Uh, I mean, they have all the data, right? It's just one of those things where it seems like they could do, you know, Apple could do it with relatively little work. But, um, you know they got, I guess, they got bigger fish to fry. So I, I always feel a little uncomfortable telling Apple what to do because uh, they're in charge and I'm not. Anyways, so we have a, a little bit of a blend of a follow-up item and a mini topic. Uh, Apple Pay has launched in the United Kingdom. Apple announced this uh, a while back, and it launched just yesterday, right, as we record this. Um, mm-hmm. So, Mike, have you gotten a chance to use it? <laughs> no. <laughs> um, basically, the situation as it stands right now is that we have Apple Pay here, um, but there are mainly there are basically four big banks in the UK. Um, there is Barclays, Lloyd's, Santander, and HSBC. There are smaller banks. Um, there's like a bank called NatWest, who would maybe be the fifth, but like they're like the four biggest as it stands right now. Uh, only three of them, sorry, only one of them, three of them don't have it, only one of them do have Apple Pay. Uh, HSBC, which is one of the banks that I bank with, uh, they pulled out in the 11th hour, and they are currently uh, later in July is their status. And it was literally yesterday they were hmm. um, they were going to be they were in the, the list of joining. It was even in some of in some of Apple's press materials, and even on the Apple Pay website, they're using HSBC cards and stuff like that to show things off. So they really poured out in the eleventh hour. Wow, you might still be able to use it before I can, as my credit card Discover is going to add it. Uh, they've said later this year, and my small local bank has said the same, but have not uh, not appeared yet. You know, every once in a while. Apple adds new banks here in the U.S., and I always like search that list for my bank. So you may be able to use it before me, which would be uh, frustrating for me at least. Um, so yeah, I mean, do do you think uh, we talked a little bit about this when they announced it? But to to recap, 
the UK already has a contactless system. Mm-hmm. Uh, we in the US are in the uh, the middle ages when it comes to debit and credit card processing. So do you think that Apple Pay can take off in the UK because the environment is different already, that people are already used to this sort of thing, so maybe it'll uh, be adopted easier? Do you think that'll hurt it? Do you have any thoughts around that? There are a couple of interesting things. So one of the things that is is difficult to nail down completely because of where it's being reported on, but I'm pretty sure I have this correct. Many The way, the way this is reported in, in a lot of US media is, or just in, in some instances, and just a lot of media in general, is Apple Pay is available in these locations, right? And they've got a list of like 10 or 15 locations. But my understanding is that's actually not accurate in the UK in the same way as it was in the US. Because when they announced that list in the US, it was like and these this there is a list of places where you're able to do it. And because they're the only places that the terminals are. But my understanding is the list is actually longer than what Apple is showing because it should work in most places where a contactless terminal is available, which is way larger than the list of like 10 or 15 companies that have been announced. Um, there are some that have to do some additional tweaking to their systems because they don't have the up-to-date systems. But th- there is actually, my understanding is, a wider breadth of places that you can use Apple Pay than what is listed officially in the Apple uh on the Apple website. The other thing is, so there's also been a bit of miscommunication, and this again, it's a similar kind of thing. It's difficult to find out because Apple doesn't really have this information and the media is difficult at portraying some of this information in that you can only spend up to £20 uh, a transaction in, uh, in UK stores. Mm-hmm. That is true in some places, but again, not in others because we have, because we've had the contactless system for longer, um, the contactless cards system, so we have contactless debit cards and contactless credit cards that have chips in them that we can use, we can beep and we can use them. That has been limited to up to £20 for security reasons because if you drop a card or lose a wallet or something like that, people could just buy whatever they want and there's no second factor of authentication right? If for just a, plastic, a piece of plastic. But what phones have done is allow for that level to be increased, whether it's through a PIN code being entered or a password being entered via a fingerprint scanner. So there has been some work been going on for longer than before Apple Pay was even in existence um, to raise that cap. Um, And some banks are supporting that and some locations are supporting that. So there is even another list of uh, companies that you can use higher limits where available. So basically, the thing is, in the UK, because we already have the infrastructure, it is a lot more complex than it is in the US because effectively Apple is leading the drive for contactless payments in the US now, mm-hmm. where Apple is just joining the fray here. Um, and it's one of the reasons why some banks have lost out, like a, a Barclays we've spoken about before, um, they were never going to do it, but apparently there's actually been a leadership change at Barclays, and now they're like, it will be... A, Soon as possible, we will have a pay, <laughs> right? Because they they were just getting raked over the coals in the media in the same way that HSBC has today because they pulled out so late in the game. Um, well, they haven't pulled out; they have they have delayed. But you know, they they basically they broke one of their social media people broke. Uh, 
not necessarily at that time they thought and people were thinking that an embargo was broken because someone from one of HSBC's social media accounts tweeted that oh it will be live on Tuesday when we didn't know that for sure um, and basically that person had probably just been reading Apple blogs because <laughs> HSBC weren't ready right yeah so then there ended up being this like weird turn of events to where we are today but um to go back to answer your question a little bit more, uh, it's difficult to say here if it will be adopted on uh, how it's going to take off because we are already used to doing this um, and in many, many ways it's way easier to pay for smaller items of a credit card or a debit card via contactless because you just hold it to it and it beeps and you're done. Nothing right. else is happening. But like with the... With the watch or the phone, with like the phone, you have to give authentication by the thumbprint. That slows down the process um, because it ha- this fingerprint scanner has to read. That is slower than finger than like because not only the fingerprint scanner reads, then the transaction is processed rather than just transaction being processed with the card. Um, and also, the watch adds a little bit of like awkwardness because you kind of have to get the wrist and you put it on. Yeah, like that 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 picture on Twitter earlier, right, with Tim Cook. Yeah, so that yeah, this this goes back to one of the other places that you can use. So I'll just let me wrap up that point. Okay, I, I talked about Tim Cook. Uh, it, basically, I think it's tough to say because one of the things that this does is it can be a little bit embarrassing to either to use this kind of stuff, like because you're like putting your phone against a terminal. Because something that has become like a standard practice is, if you want to pay by card, you have to alert the cashier that you want to pay by card. And if you're paying by contactless card, what seems to have become like a social norm here is you just show, like you just take your card out your wallet and you like show it, you gesture towards it to the person, like you you show them the card and then they operate, then they like enable the scanner for you to beep, right? But here I'll be like, what, I showed them my phone? Like how am I going to do this? Like it's going to be weird because we've got this inbuilt like social norm now. And one of the things about British people is we don't like to embarrass ourselves. And if we are having to fiddle and like I'm putting my watch on the thing and it's not beeping and I'm trying like three times, like if that keeps happening, people are going to be a bit more hesitant to use it, I think. So that's so I think it's a bit up in the air. I think that a lot of people will be excited to try it um, because it's a new thing with their technology. Uh, and I know that I will use it because I just will use it because I'm excited about it. I will be using it on my watch all the time because it's just easy and awesome. Now, going back to the Tim Cook tweet. So Tim Cook tweeted earlier today um, about you know enjoy apple pay uk and they showed a picture and this picture is people using their apple watches on the london underground because the london underground has a uh, contactless card entry system we have cards that you can buy on top up with credit and you can use them or have your travel cards on them but more recently you can actually just use your bank card you just beep it and it just debits a fare from you like for one pound fifty or something but this is going to be able to be done with the Apple Watch and with the with the phone. But these barriers, these systems have been in place for years and years and years. And the way that they're built is as you go through the barrier, the reader is on the right-hand side of you. Mm-hmm. So like you take your card and you beep the card and you go through. So the image in the press shots and what Tim Cook tweeted today is the three people lining up. One person going through the barriers, one person is authenticating on the barriers, one person behind getting ready. And everyone is using their watch in their right hand. Uh, on their right wrist because yeah. that's where the reader is but the majority of people will be like 
awkwardly contorting themselves mm-hmm. to try and get through the barrier. I actually think that for this, for the, for the underground, I will use my phone because I will want to do it with my right hand to just place it on and go through. Because one of the things about these barriers is speed is of the essence. There are like lines and lines of people. And sometimes you've got like two of these things and people just beep in and walk in. Beep, walk, beep, walk. Like you just got to keep it moving because it's London. Uh, so I, I'm interested to see how that's going to shake out. But that did make me smile at the time. Mm-hmm. The... Uh... The thing that I think about in the photo is that the, this is a two-handed operation, right? Because you have to, um, to use Apple Pay on the watch. My understanding is you have to hold down the or press the button on the side, and you know if your hands have something else in them, like if you have your pass, or your phone, your right hand, something in your left hand, that's okay. But with so many other things with the watch, it is actually two-handed. So I wonder if if that's a, a thing too. You know, if you have a bag or an umbrella or something, and it could get out of hand quickly. I think. But, um, yeah, I think you you just tap it and then it activates and then you you put it down. But if you're gonna need if you're gonna have one handful, then just grab your phone and just do it with the phone. But I do think the phone will actually be slower, and that will be less convenient for the tube. Yeah, I also like the uh, closing quote on his tweet, but no opening quote. But yeah, what can you do? Tim Cook is gonna tweet the way he tweets, and he tweets however he wants to tweet, and mm. it's always to your upset. It's true. Um, so. I will report back in a couple of weeks with even more out-of-date impressions uh, about Apple Pay because they're already out of date because it's been in the US for so long and now it's already in the UK and I still can't use it for another couple of weeks. But when I do, you guys are going to hear all about it. I'm excited. Take a break? Yes. This week's episode of Connected is brought to you by Igloo, the internet you'll actually like. With Igloo, you don't have to be stuck or even chained to your desk to get your own work done in the way that you want to get it done. If you've ever looked at your internet and thought, whoever has designed this must truly hate me and everyone that I know... This is what Igloo can help you with. Igloo allow you to create an intranet that can be used anywhere and will look the way that you want. You can manage your task list from your laptop during a meeting, share status updates from your phone as you're leaving a client's site and access the latest version of a file from home. You can even do this in your pajamas if you want and you can do all of this in an environment that looks and acts the way that you want it to. Igloo is really configurable. You can give it its own, you can give your Igloo its own look and feel. You can rebrand it completely. Give it the, the colors and the fonts and the logos that you want to put on there and you can use their great drag and drop widget editor to build their your own uh, teams with their own functionality. So let's say the accountancy team and the design team and the development team in your company, they all need to have their igloo configured in specific ways that make sense for the way that they work, where you can very, very easily do this. With our mobile lives these days as well, people are increasingly wanting to use their own apps, like their own storage apps and stuff like that, like Dropbox and Box and stuff like that, because they have their own workflows that they work in. Well, one of the problems of doing this is whilst it helps people feel like they're being more productive, and I'm sure that they are, what it does is it scatters documents across different platforms and takes them out of the secure environments that you set up in a company. Well, Igloo fights this by and, and wins by bringing those service, those services inside of your Igloo. So Igloo allows you to integrate Box, Google Drive, and Dropbox into their big, easy-to-secure platform. They have 256-bit encryption, single sign-on, and support for Active Directory integrations. This is all stuff that people that need security for their system 
will love to hear because it's all there. And with Igloo as well, you can also share files with your coworkers with their own tools. They have their own collaboration system where you can upload files and people can comment on them and download them. And you can also track who's read them as well with red receipts. It's time to break away from the internet that you hate. Go and sign up for Igloo right now and you can try it out for free with any team of up to 10 people for as long as you like. Sign up right now at igloosoftware.com slash connected. Thank you so much to Igloo for their support of this show and Relay FM. Alrighty, so up next in our series of mini topics, NASA uh, to this morning, going back to the space thing for a second, uh, NASA's 3 billion mile journey to Pluto is um, at its uh, at its peak today. So uh, if you've been watching the news today, I'm sure you've seen, there's a link in the show notes as well. Uh, this this image of Pluto, really the first uh, up close image that humanity has seen of the uh, dwarf planet. It used to be a planet, not a planet anymore, and uh, it's really quite something to look at, isn't it? Yeah, it's um, space stuff is always weird to me, like uh, because I don't know an awful amount about space, as was demonstrated on Upgrade this week, talking about like the build up to this, mm-hmm. um, and. Like, I look at these things, like, I look at that picture of, of Pluto, and, like, one of my first thoughts was, like, how is it illuminated so well? And I was like, hang on a minute, the sun did, does that. <laughs> and, like, because, you know, you, like, you look at a picture like this, and it's, like, it's perfectly illuminated, and everything else around it is complete darkness, mm-hmm. darkness like you've never seen in your yeah. life. And it's, like, how is it so perfect? And then you realize that, you know, like, the space the space of space, right? Just the vast emptiness of nothing. It's like, no, you can't see anything else because there's nothing else. Right. Like, and it's just, I, I look at these things and it's like, it's so interesting and it's also so weird. And now that I'm looking at Pluto, I can see the outline of Pluto. That has been a thing today that's been going around the internet. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've seen this. That like, what they call it the heart of Pluto, right? Is what it's being Yeah, I'll put, a, I'll put a tweet about it in the, uh, in the show notes for us. But it does kind of look like the outline of Pluto the dog now, mm-hmm. now that I see this. Yeah. Uh, but yes, yeah, it's, it's really, it really is kind of an incredible, crazy, crazy thing. It, it is. You know, it's, uh, I could have got space stuff all day, but the the fact that we sent basically a robot the size of a piano to Pluto and it took uh, nine years to get there and it does 36,000 miles an hour, which is pretty quick. Yeah. Um, it just really is is nuts, and so today, July fourteenth, uh, the spacecraft is actually silent. It can't talk to us and take pictures and work at the same time. So it is uh, working because it is flying past Pluto. It's not orbiting anything. It's basically going past it on its way further out. And so, uh, starting tonight and then tomorrow, NASA will be in a sixteen month download period of all this information that's gathering today so you know if you thought that your torrent of uh battle bots was slow uh, 16 months to download uh images and mapping and stuff is um really uh sort of a crazy thing that we can send data at all but it's like it's like a couple of kilobytes a second it's not not super quick so what kind of information is it actually getting then so a lot of it is is imagery a lot of it is uh, looking at uh, Pluto's atmosphere to see, as it's long believed that the Pluto has an atmosphere, but probably very thin. And so they're taking measurements and looking at that. Some of that will happen once it's past uh, 
once it's on the back edge of Pluto, it will um, uh, look at it from a couple different angles and see maybe what the atmosphere could be made of, how how robust it is, um, to see if there's there's thoughts that there might be uh, subterranean oceans, uh, probably not of water, but of um, uh, some other materials. And so, looking at just kind of discovering the makeup of this of this um, dwarf planet, because Pluto is actually part of the part of a series of basically icy objects at the edge of the solar system. Pluto is the biggest. And so we're seeing what they can learn of, of this, this particular example. And maybe they can take that knowledge and spread it elsewhere. So, uh, it just, it's nuts. And I think like you looking at that photo, the thing to me about this whole thing is that it took not, it took nine years to get there. Uh, it takes something like four and a half hours for data to come back to us. Um, at basically the speed of light and it's just the the scale of it all that you know this thing launched a decade ago and they've just been hanging out waiting for it to get there and they have you know basically 24 hours of like experimentation and then they're gonna they're gonna move on to a couple of their objects they haven't said what yet um but the you know it's like all this lead up for a very intense period of time and then this data will slowly trickle in is just really just that sort of scale of it is is what always gets me when it comes to space stuff how are they sending the data uh nasa has something called the deep space network uh maybe we can find a wikipedia article um and basically it is set up uh where nasa and like the esa and i believe other agencies can can use this as well uh say represent that's right um so the DSN basically is set up where it, it we can listen out on all sides of the Earth because the Earth obviously is rotating actually fairly quickly, and so it's basically just long range radio signals. Um, that is vastly understating it because I'm actually not an expert in the DSN. It's extremely long range. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it really is. I mean, uh, if you think about uh, Voyager, which is even further out than this thing is. Um, you know, the Voyager has actually, depending who you, what articles you read, actually left the solar system last year uh, and is actually kind of in this intermediate space. And we can still get data back from it. Um, so it's basically like a, a modem on top of a really tall building. And uh, we listen and these things talk back to us. It's very slow, but apparently very reliable for the most part. So um, props to the people who invented it because it seems like an impossible problem to solve to me so what does the voyager do then so voyager looked at other big planets so it didn't get a look at pluto but looked at jupiter saturn uh uranus and neptune and it is now sort of jettisoned from the solar system and we're learning about uh what takes place outside the solar system there's kind of like an envelope of material and radiation and energy around the sun and it has passed through that and for the first time ever, we are seeing the solar system from the outside, and um, it's pretty cool. And the Voyager has a gold record on it, so uh, you can listen to some uh, sweet tunes if you're an alien and come across Voyager one or two. Man, I don't know about any of this stuff. Like, I'm, it's very, very interesting to hear, and I'm very interested to hear about it. I just don't know any of it, you know, like because it doesn't, it doesn't like break through my purview very often yeah like it's just when something like this happens right you know? and and this has been i mean all over the news today and like 
it's really captivated people because it it unlike like in the 70s and 80s when some of this other stuff was going on even the 90s like we haven't seen this sort of exploration really sort of in like mine and yours time like some happened we were real little but it's been kind of quiet and so i think for us is like adults you know in this time period to see something you know see this image you know i saw it on twitter for the first time this morning like this pluto image has been circulating today uh nasa tweeted it it's like hey like that's just crazy right that i like we were talking about last week with radio i didn't sit down and watch the evening news and see this image i saw it in tweetbot like i was still in bed this morning like <laughs> it's so crazy um so i think that that sort of thing can break through now sort of more easily because um i think a people are just more open about what they're nerdy about and that things like social media make it so much easier for data to get out you don't have to go find the news it sort of comes to you which we're going to talk about in a minute but um but yeah it's cool it's a fun day for space nerds so was the voyager it was kind of going in a different direction right they were sending it in yes yes different different trajectory and um New Horizons, this the spacecraft won't catch it. Voyager has a really uh, good head start on on this. Um, it's it's interesting though. I don't remember the exact numbers, but m- roughly it you know it took basically three days for Apollo to get to the moon, um, and this craft got to the moon in like nine hours. So it's it's traveling very quickly, um, but not fast enough to catch up. From what I saw, uh, I saw that on a, a Reddit AMA today with the. Um, NASA team. But I guess it would on an infinite time scale, right? Mm. Thank you, Marco. <laughs> um, I, I'm fascinated. It's very interesting. It's very, very interesting. Like, it's, it's, I think part of the reason as well, I was going to say this a moment ago, that like, I think this is captivating people is because Pluto is like more interesting to many modern people than many of the planets are because of the you know the big fuhrer of a pluto right neil degrasse tyson saying it's not a planet and then everybody freaking out anyways uh not a planet yeah i think that's one reason too that i think that's you know been in the news and um there's a lot of fun stuff about landing on comets and going to mars like all the stuff that we talked about a couple weeks ago um there's more space stuff happening um I think that's uh, it's a fun time to be interested in this stuff. Indeed. Where can people do? You, do you, have you got anywhere that people can can go if they want to get started with space stuff? Yeah, that's a good question. There, there are a couple. Um, there are a couple of blogs. Um, space dot com is decent as long as you don't mind. Um, uh, their website does weird stuff, especially on mobile. Um, there's one also called Space Flight Insider. I actually met the editor of that when I was in Florida, um, and they're they're like at a bunch of press conferences and stuff. They got they've got good coverage. Um, those are the two that I go to for like straight up news. But NASA itself has a ton of social media, a ton of uh, blogs just on NASA.gov that you can subscribe to. Um, so it's 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 easier than ever to follow along with this stuff. And that I, th- I think one thing that turns people off is there's so much of it. Like if you just subscribe to like the main NASA blog, it's almost overwhelming. Um, but you can go in there and, and you can look at ind- individual things and kind of tailor the content you get. So it's fun. 
So when you said space flight inside, <laughs> I thought you, <laughs> I thought you said space <laughs> space flight and cider <laughs> like the drink. <laughs> <laughs> So performed one of the weirdest, uh, <laughs> one of the weirdest Twitter searches that I've ever performed, and got nothing, and then realised the prop what I had looked for and why that was so stupid. <laughs> Space flight insider. <laughs> you should start that blog now. You do the spaceflight, and I'll do the cider. Yeah. What if it was just like um, uh, it was like a regular cider, right? Um. But you know, most ciders have like pictures of trees or like apples or something on them, and instead of just just a spaceship, and it just is like a regular cider, just with a different badge. I think that's, I think that's our new business. <laughs> oh dear! Oh, uh... so just, just before we went on the air today, uh, I saw some great Federico news, um, and figured that I had to 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 bring it up. Um. As of today, via an update on the App Store, the official Twitter app on the iPhone uh, now has the native share sheet built in. Uh, it's about time, guys. Way to go. I don't understand this. Why does Twitter do anything that they do? So a lot of people have been complaining recently. They do A-B testing in the app. So some subset of users, like the tweet button will be in a different place. Or this other feature will be over here. It's like none of the options seem good. Like they just keep fiddling with things and there's never any improvement. So, but like the weird thing, the the weird thing about this is like, you know, you've kind of, you've got this point where it's like, there has to be, there has to have been a decision that they made internally as to why they decided not to support this. There has to be one, whether it makes sense or not. That's not for me or you to decide. We just know that there was a decision because they didn't do it. Um, so when I see something like this, it's like, well, now something's changed, but nothing changed externally in between iOS 8 and today. It's like, I see something like this, and I'm like, why did you do it? Like, what took you so long in the first place? Like, why didn't you want to do it? And why now? Like today, they've brought this new functionality where you can the links look slightly different. They're, they're formatted slightly differently. It just doesn't make sense to me. Like there has been a change in their system, but it doesn't seem like it's enough of a change to warrant overhauling the way that they share links. So it's like I don't understand. Yeah, maybe uh, Dick Costello was just really anti-share sheet. Could be the only thing, right? Because it's that's I mean, a change. I mean, I, I you got to wonder. Like, was it something politically internally that was causing, you know, causing the delay? I think it's, I think it's ridiculous. And we've talked a lot about the Twitter app and not to bring all that back up, but like, they're just not good. uh, They're just not good citizens on iOS um, or Android, really. The Android app's not very good either. Or the Mac. Yeah, anywhere, really, except Except the web. web. And even the web app, um, like, I'm logging into it now. Is uh, uh, it's just not like it's the old it's the old URL and or the old style I can tweet from that, but then if I go to my profile, it looks different. But I can't tweet from there. Like, it's what what are you doing? It's not a complicated thing. What Twitter does, like, just make it better. Let's make it better. It's impossible to understand how some of these companies work, and and currently, uh, Twitter is 
is really one of them. And and that might be why they're in the situation that they just lost their CEOs because they are so incomprehensible. Mm-hmm. But anyway, it's there now if you want it. Uh, the iPad doesn't have it, and the iPad <laughs> app today removed the Discover tab. <laughs> that was what that was what the iPad got. The iPad got the removal of a feature, uh, and the iPhone uh, got a feature that people actually want. There's no, there's no rhyme or reason to it, uh, and you know, you, you would think that on one hand that new leadership, that a new CEO could come in and say, "Hey, look, you know, we're gonna." Uh, we're gonna make our apps um, the best that we can. You know, there's no reason that the first party client shouldn't be the best one. But the reality is, on any platform, there's good, there's better third party alternatives. And that's if I were coming into Twitter as as leadership, that seems like a really bad sign of something internally that's just not not gone right. Either they don't see the value in it, which is concerning, or they're unable to. Uh, unable to affect change. Like I'm, I'm sure there were people who wanted that share sheet there on day one and who were fighting for it, but for some reason that couldn't that couldn't happen. And whatever process or whatever step along the way has prevented them from making their apps good, like that should that should be concerning if you're if you're in charge over there. Well, sure, because like once Apple implement or like they want people yeah, you know, people were doing their own versions of share sheets, right? And you have to do whatever you have to do to keep that up to date and keep that with additional functionality except for you know, and etc. As soon as Apple brings in a feature like this, it's it's surely easier for you to just implement that. Mm-hmm. Right? with developer resources, it must just be easier, right, to just say, right, well we'll just use this new API now and then we have a share sheet that we don't have to maintain anymore. And we don't have to add functionality to or remove functionality from, like it just is. So they they were having, I'm sure, to work harder to keep it. Like it it seems it just I don't I don't understand the way that these big companies work. But from working in a big company, uh, pre in pre- my previous life, I know that it was some dumb decisions made by some dumb people because they thought that their revenue was tied up in the share sheet. Yeah, that's what made or break it. Just that 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 one feature. No, it, it's sad and it's it's um it's puzzling as to why they continue down this path. But uh, we'll just see how that goes, I guess. Yep, we most definitely will. Okie dokie. Uh, shall we move on? Thank our second sponsor. Let's do it. This week's episode is brought to you by our friends over at Harry's. For many of us, shaving is a pain. It can be uncomfortable, it can cause nicks and cuts and scrapes and even razor burn. And razor blades today can be super expensive as well. That's not a great start for a thing, right? You don't want any of this stuff. Like, why would you want to have to deal with any of this stuff? So this is what Harry's helps with. Harry's is a company that was started to try and remove as many of these things as possible. Harry's make their own blades, so they know that they're great quality blades. They're made by a great uh, factory in Germany that Harry's owns, and they offer these high-quality razor blades at about half the price of other big brand blades. They ship for free to your front doorstep. You're not going to get to the checkout and see a big charge 
charge added on for shipping because they ship for free. And Harry's starter set is an amazing deal, just $15. So you, the first time you're going to use Harry's, you're going to want to grab a razor, you're going to want to grab some blades, you'll get three of them, and you'll want to grab either their moisturizing shave cream or firming shave gel. They know this, so they package it up into one lovely little set, and for $15, you can get it for yourself. And in a moment, I'm going to tell you how you can get it for $10. On average, an everyday shaver who uses Harry's products will save $150 each and every year. With Harry's, your satisfaction is guaranteed because that is something that is so important to them. And, you know, this comes through in the stuff that they make. They make great products that all work really well. They have a great feel to them. They feel great on the skin. Um, they have great products as well that they make. I mentioned their moisturizing shave cream and firming shave gel. I've used them both. Um, they're both great. They both smell really great. Uh, I'm more a fan of the firming shave gel simply because I think that a gel that turns into a foam is kind of cool. I just like that. Uh, I also use uh, their moisturizer that they make, which is really nice. It smells really great. I use that every day. I don't shave every day, um, as anybody can tell. I keep a beard and I kind of I use uh, Harry's razors to keep myself trim, um, to keep my beard lined trim uh, but I do use their moisturizer um, I use that very often and I really really like it it protects my face and keeps it looking and feeling good um, you can go and experience a clean close comfortable shave for yourself with Harry's go to harrys.com and you'll be able to get five dollars off your first purchase if you use the code connected with your first purchase that's h-a-r-r-y-s.com and enter the coupon code connected and you'll save that five dollars off and start shaving better today thank you so much to Harry's for their support of this show so up next, we're going to talk about uh, backups a little bit. We're going to talk about this last week, but um, ran over, so we thought it, we'd slot it in, uh, in here in our sort of grab bag. Middle of July, there's no news type type show. Um, so I, I wrote about backups five years ago, which was a moment for me of like, holy cow, uh, my site has been around a while. Um, but I thought it'd be time to sort of revisit the my strategy because uh, the landscape has shifted a little bit. So I sort of have three uh, key tenets when it comes to having a good backup. A backup should be redundant. Uh, so you have more than one, uh, more than one backup for a couple of different reasons. Uh, the sort of the one I, I call out, I think the most common one is if your if your time machine drive is, you know, plugged in on your desk next to your iMac and something happens to that desk, uh, power uh, surge, uh, you know, a fire, somebody breaks in and steals your stuff um your data and your backup were only about four feet away from each other and that's no good so you can do that but if you have a secondary backup somewhere else uh you're protected in that way uh it should be easy to manage no one wants a backup system that is uh a pain in the rear to use because uh the the truth is you just won't use it apple discovered this uh early on in, in time machine uh, which rolled out with uh, os 10 leopard Super easy. You plug in a drive, you say, yes, use this for Time Machine, and then you're done with it. You don't have to worry about, is it working, is it not working, did I forget to run it? Uh, time Machine just takes care of itself, and that's really key for any backup Time Machine and beyond that it's easy to manage. Uh, and third one, it should be testable, uh, that you should be able to go in and retrieve data um, on some sort of basis to make sure that everything's working correctly. Again, something Time Machine does well I can go in and I can pull, you know, a folder from my desktop from three weeks ago. Um, but if you're looking at something like a bootable backup or other things that make sure that it's actually doing what you expect it to, 
So when you do need it, when you do have a, a disk failure or data loss, you're not then surprised that your strategy has has failed you. I think those three um those three laws of, of backup uh at least have served me well over the years. Um and we can get into the details, like there's a there's a link in the show notes, um which you can find somewhere on the internet, I believe. They're over at relay.fm slash connected slash 48 this time. Look, look at you. The number is different every week if you mm-hmm. haven't been paying attention. So you, you can find this this link and you can read through kind of what I'm doing specifically. Um, but those are kind of the three things that, that come to mind. Redundancy, uh, ease of use, and, and uh, testability. I, th- I think if you look at those things and, and those are the metrics you use, um, at that point, the details are uh, not irrelevant, but are less important. So, for instance, I'm using a Time Machine as sort of my immediate local backup, um, and then I use uh, Arc and Amazon Cloud Drive as my offsite, um, and then I also have uh, a set of drives that my MacBook Pro and my my Synology at home are cloned to every every couple of weeks, and those are stored offsite uh, in a secure location. So it's again, it's having it's multi-layered, right? Uh, if my time machine that sits on my desk, it's right here. I can I can touch it. Um, if this desk goes away with my laptop on it, I'm okay. I've got a redundancy somewhere else. Uh, it's easy to use. Arc and Time Machine are all very easy to use. Super Duper, which is what I use to backup off-site, easy to use, and uh, I don't have to worry about like configurations or making sure the all these little knobs are twisted to the right way and levers are pulled. It all just works. And then it's it's all testable. I can go get data from any of these sources at any time I want and uh, and see that everything is uh, behaving correctly. So I feel like I'm going to say something dangerous right now. Mm. I think your system is crazy. <laughs> so Federico said that. Uh, I was reading the Mac Story email, which you, if you haven't subscribed to, you should definitely go uh, read it. It's a, it's a great email newsletter he puts out on Fridays. Uh, and he linked to it, which I didn't know he was going to do. And he says, Stephen Hackett's backup strategy for OS ten is all kinds of paranoid and wonderful at the same time. Which <laughs> I chuckled and actually I sent him a little note. I said, you know, you you, you caught me off guard and I LOL'd uh, while reading a newsletter on my iPad. So, uh, how so? There's just too much going on here. Like, it's... There is so many things happening to the point that you have to draw a diagram oh, for yeah. it to make any sense to people. I did draw a diagram, but it's very simple. I did it in my node, which is great for this sort of stuff. It's not um, simple. It's not simple. Right, so it, where does the Synology get its data from? Uh, house, like, so the Synology houses our family iTunes library. So if I buy... Uh, we bought Interstellar the other night, and... Uh, on the Apple TV and the iTunes library is stored on the Synology. So now there's a copy of Interstellar on my Synology. Uh, Synology also houses like archives of stuff. So everything Relay produces gets uh, downloaded automatically to the Synology. All of my disk images and stuff because I'm still doing some tech consulting. All that sort of stuff is there. So it's it's sort of just a, a grab bag of big files I've collected over the years. And what is offsite USB clone? So if you if you read a little bit further down, I keep external, like still USB drives, and uh, I clone the Synology over uh, to that drive um, 
and I keep it off site. So it is getting backed up to Amazon Cloud Drive, even though that's taking forever. Uh, but I have a complete copy of my Synology stored elsewhere. So if the Synology goes away or the house burns down or gets hit by lightning on a day like today, uh, the, all that data is is elsewhere, uh, safe and sound. Okay, so the Synology, right? This is fine to me. That all makes sense. Okay. All right, I just wanted to lay all that out there first. Is okay. The Synology has data on it, which isn't anywhere else. Correct. So it makes sense. That was why I asked, where is its data coming from? Because if yeah. everything was just coming from your MacBook, then that was crazy to me. Yeah, the Synology it. houses stuff that is, I mean, it's, I have four and a half terabytes in use. It's way bigger than I could put on any one machine. So it's sort of the, the central hub of all of our stuff. Right. So, and then it is offsite by USB, which I've always found offsite backups peculiar. I know like physical offsite backups. I've yes. always found those peculiar. Um, I know why people do them, but I would just not do that. Yeah. So, so I could address that real quickly. You can like backing this thing up to Amazon Cloud Drive, um, which if you haven't checked out, it's sixty bucks a year. It's unlimited storage and bandwidth. It's stored on AWS. Like, great service. Um, that would suffice for the offsite backup. If my again my house gets burned down, it gets hit by lightning, and the thing gets cooked. Um then my data is outside of my home. So so either one serves as an offsite backup. The reason I do both is that the USB clone is immediately available, where Amazon Cloud Drive, like if my Synology goes up in flames, I can get that four and a half terabytes back from Amazon, but it's going to take forever to download all that again. And and so for me, the Amazon Cloud Drive is like a super rainy day where something has happened to the Synology and the offsite drive for some reason. It's it's my safety net. Um, so you, you can choose one or the other. And, and, you know, there's a lot of good services to do this. One reason I chose Amazon Cloud Drive is because Synology can talk to it natively. I don't have to run an app somewhere else and then pipe my data through a Mac Mini somewhere. But the Synology OS can talk directly to Amazon Cloud Drive just built in. Uh, which was a, a big factor in choosing it as my offsite cloud solution. Okay. Yes, the MacBook Pro is complicated. And, and this is where it gets crazy. Okay. Because, so you have on your MacBook Pro, you have two different time machines. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right? One which is via local USB and one which is hosted on your Synology. Yes. Both at home. Right. The 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 local, the, the time machine, just it's a external hard drive plugged into MacBook Pro is at work. So uh, even though I'm working for myself now, or sort of, and then definitely will be at the end of the month, uh, I have a I have office space that's not in the home, and so that time machine drive sits here on the desk against right here. It's like, it's right right there. Um, uh, the the idea between of having time machine at work at the office and at home is that my data may change sometimes drastically, if I'm editing a show or something, can drastically change over the course of a couple of days. And I might be uh, at work, I might be at the office, you know, maybe two or three times a week, maybe. I don't really know yet. And so the time machine on the Synology is relatively new. I know that I will be home and that the MacBook Pro will be at home and plugged in. And so I've got time machine both places um, just to make sure that uh, at least one of them is the most up-to-date. So this would make sense if it wasn't them for an off-site bootable USB clone updated bi-weekly with SuperDuper. Yes. So the... Uh, <laughs> it's like, I'll explain yourself. <laughs> okay. No, it's fine. Uh, so SuperDuper, uh, which we should put in the show notes, is a great utility. 
I can do lots of things. I use it as, hey, I want just a bootable snapshot because Time Machine is not bootable. So if the SSD of my MacBook Pro were to were to croak or I needed to ship it off and had a, a loaner machine or something, uh, it would be a little bit of work to install OS X and then like restore Time Machine backup. And that's all doable. And if, uh, But I, I wanted something I get up and running quickly because this is my only machine. It's a production machine here at Relay. My entire livelihood now goes through this MacBook Pro. And so to have something where I can get back up and running uh, quickly uh, is important to me. Now, you might say, well, Stephen, if it's only updated bi-weekly, your data might not be completely you know, up to date. And that's okay. Um, really, this drive just, sir, just exists. Uh, so I have something that I can boot off of and have my software and have my settings and have everything uh, if I need to be up and running quickly after some sort of disaster. You could get a Mac up and running really quickly. No, like, I can't. Without and, any data on it. And out of all of the four little sprockets shooting out of the MacBook Pro, like this is the one that is could probably go away and like I not really realize it because I already have an off-site physical backup because I'm backing up at work and at home. So I already have like a physical disk at each location with my data. It's already off-site in that way. This this really is sort of a legacy part of my backup system that I've kept around just in case, because I have the hard disk already, and <laughs> it's already set up, so I can just plug it in and do it. And where do you keep this? I can't tell you that. Really, where do you keep it? It's safe and sound somewhere. Come on. Where is it kept? Is it at a family member's house, an office? It is at a family member's house. It is, no long, it, is no, it is not at the home or the office. Okay. And then you also have Amazon Cloud Drive. Yes. Why? Uh, it's like, um, I mean, I'm using it as opposed to something like Crashman or Backblaze, both of which are great, regardless of their sponsorship status or not. Crashplan and Backblaze are both really good services. Um, and if you need offsite cloud backup, like, go check them out. They're easy to use. They're really cheap. Um, I switched over to Amazon Cloud Drive very recently because I was already paying for it to back the Synology up to it. And so for me, this when I set it up for the Synology, it was just a simplification of, oh, I can also back up the MacBook Pro to it. Because um, I was using uh, CrashPlan up until this point. I use ARC, uh, ARQ, which is... Uh, it's one of those little pieces of Mac software that's just delightful for like the... I'm sure the very small people, number of people who use it. Uh, you can back up to S3, Dropbox, Google Drive, all sorts of crazy stuff. And I have my home folder backing up to it, just over the Wi. You know, if I'm at, if I'm at home or I'm at work, I'm on the Wi-Fi. It's just backing up, uh, just my home folder. Again, like the Synology cloud backup, this is a truly worst case scenario. Like my house burns down while my offsite drives are in it. You know, because I have to bring those home and update them. Um, or if uh, for some reason I've got time machine issues or you know, something like that where uh, I need something that's sort of outside Apple system. Uh, it's available to me on Amazon Cloud Drive and ARC encrypts it all. And so I just install ARC, decrypt the files and download them and, and can go from there. All of this just seems like too much to me. It it It, I, it's, it is a lot. Uh, there's no getting around that. But f- for me, there's there's a subset of my day that if it were to go away, I would be okay with it because it's not stuff that I actively need. A lot of that's now in the Synology, so 
for instance, I have, you know, a bunch of like OS 10 installers from, I mean, I think all the way back to like the public beta. I don't need those, but I, I like to have them around because I write about this stuff and it's handy. If that, if that directory were to go away, I can rebuild that. I can get those installers again if I need them. Um, so there's sort of that level of data. But on the other hand, a lot of my data in in some ways is irreplaceable. So things like my photo library uh, cannot be recreated, right? I can't make my kids be babies again and do that cute thing they did three years ago. So for me, that sort of data, uh, documents I'm currently working on, so things like I'm, I'm writing, drafts I'm working on, uh projects that Mike that you and I do that might not be in Google Drive that you know I might have locally for some reason. That sort of stuff, editing a podcast. <laughs> uh that sort of stuff is is irreplaceable. And so for me, like because this thing is redundant, because it's easy to use, like I don't touch any of other than like bringing the offsite uh USB drives home every couple weeks, there's no nothing I have to do. Like I pause Arc and Time Machine if I'm recording, but that's about it. And uh, so it's not like it's it's this weight on my shoulders that I have to worry about to make sure all my backup things are going. Um, but it is a weight off my shoulders knowing that, hey, you know what? Like if my photo library were to go away, it is in on my machine, on Dropbox, one, two, you know, three other places, four other places, because I need to make sure that those things are safe and sound. Hmm. So, um, any any other questions? I have some, but they're not related to your Mac. Okay. So I want to talk about how I back up my Mac. Yes. Uh, but before we do that, let me take a break. Sounds good. This week's episode is also brought to you by Squarespace. You can start building your website today by visiting squarespace.com and using the offer code WORLD at checkout and you'll save yourself 10%. That's Squarespace. Build it beautiful. When it comes to finding a place for yourself on the internet, you should go to squarespace.com because they give you all of the tools that you need without you having to worry about any of the stuff that you don't want to have to worry about. Like when it comes to building a website, you kind of there's a reason you want to do it. Like whether you want to sell something or you want to promote something or you want to write something or you want to show off your artwork or something like that. You don't want to have to worry about, right, so I better go find a host and then I better start writing some code or find something or install something and patch it and all that kind of stuff stuff like most people and i include myself in this and many people that i know that are very nerdy people including steven just don't want to have to worry about looking after things like that i mean to tinker with things like that that actually detract from getting the the work done that you want to do to actually have the website in the first place and this is what squarespace enables you to be able to do you can build a site that looks professionally designed regardless of your skill level without any coding required they have intuitive easy to use tools and they can make your website look and feel exactly how you want without compromising on the way it looks like it's always going to look great because their tools are just great they have state-of-the-art technology that they use to power your website and they ensure security and stability and they are trusted by millions of people and companies 
all around the world. Uh, their site templates are absolutely fantastic to look at. They all feature responsive web design built right in, so they look great on desktop, they look great on mobile, they look great on tablets as well. But this is just getting started with Squarespace. They have tons of other awesome features. They have their commerce platform where you can sell your own stuff, physical and digital goods. We use it to power the relay store. Um, and we also power the relay blog with, with Squarespace as well because they built that stuff better than we could even ever imagine that we would want to be able to do ourselves. They have rock-solid, fast hosting. They have 24-7 support through live chat and email. They have teams located in New York, Dublin, and Portland who are there to help you. They have their dev platform, so if you do want to tinker with things, you can take your Squarespace site further than ever before then by using their dev tools if you really, really want to. Um, and you can also get your own free domain name as well if you sign up for an account with them for a year. Squarespace plans start at just $8 a month, and you can sign up for a free trial right now by going to squarespace.com. And when you do decide to sign up for a plan, make sure that you use the offer code WORLD. It's going to get you 10% off your first purchase, and it will also show your support for this show. Thank you so much to Squarespace for seeing, being such a continued supporter of Relay FM. Squarespace, boot it beautiful. They're the best. They are the best. So, um, I had never really bothered with too much backup stuff. It's just not really something that I ever fussed with too much, uh, much to your dismay. But I have kind of got that in check a bit more now. But it's still nowhere near close to what you do. So, my backup is kind of split into a few different, uh, a few different things like yours is. So I have two machines. I don't have any servers or anything like that at home. Uh, I have my MacBook Pro and I have the Mac Pro. The MacBook Pro uh, is backed up to Backblaze. That's that's what I use. Backblaze is a past sponsor. It is a future sponsor. But it is the company that I choose to back up my data to because it's the one that I like the most. Um, I think the tools are very simple. It's easy for me to schedule things. Uh, I have a bad internet connection, so uh, uploading can throttle me. And I really like their scheduling tools. Um, my internet connection is terrible. I get like, was it like sometimes it can be about like two megabits up, like is what I get <laughs> on a good day. No uh, good. I'm lucky if I get one. So it's really important to me to have a tool that can enable me to very easily pause things, which I can do, and also to schedule things as well. So it doesn't interrupt with the times when I'm most productive, right? Like when I'm trying to actually get work done and just literally because I'm uploading a file to Dropbox or I'm uploading some files to Backblaze, I cannot load web pages. So it's very important to me that I have good tools like Backblaze that allow me to schedule things. So that's why I use them. Um, so that's what I have there. My MacBook Pro, I use Backblaze for it. That's all, right? The Mac Pro uh, has a Time Machine uh, drive attached to it. That's all that, that has. Now, I have two reasons for this. Uh, again, the Mac Pro has very, very large files on it. Very large files, multiple gigabyte files. I can't have that upload to the cloud. Right. Because the Mac Pro actually is tethered to a mobile LTE hotspot. It's a big game over after yeah. like one backup. Yep, cannot do it. Because I have to pay uh, quite a lot of money just to be able to transfer some of the files around that we transfer around every week uh, for all the different shows and the multiple, multiple, multiple gigabytes of, of audio. Um, but my key thing in, in all of this is the most important stuff for me is in Dropbox. Mm -hmm. That's where all my files are. Like every file that I need to worry about is in Dropbox. Like so much so that when I had a 
hard drive failure. Well, not hard drive failure. When I poured liquid into my computer and it killed the hard drive along with everything else, every, I, didn't, I didn't feel like I lost anything. I have never to this day felt like there was something that I lost because everything was in Dropbox. I mean, now it's also in Backblaze as well, so I'm, I'm doubling that, which is great. I recently as well, you don't know if you know this, I pay for Dropbox now. Good. That's, you know, congratulations good. to me, right? Oh, it's good. Yeah, I, I do. I've <laughs> paid it for it for a couple of years. Um, it's one of those things that, like a terabyte of space is crazy. No, no one will ever use it. But um, yeah, I don't need it. I don't need it because I mean, a terabyte is bigger than either of the hard drives. Right, Jason spoke about this before. That's big, bigger than either of the the SSDs that I have in either of my machines. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's I was just too frequently bumping up against limits, so I was just like, forget it. I'm just going to pay for it. Um, a lot of the stuff that you put on your Synology, mm-hmm. I don't have. Like that data doesn't exist to me. Like the media stuff. Yeah, I don't have movies that I can't re-download. Uh, I don't have music that I don't stream uh, or can re-download, and all of my photos go to Dropbox. Mm-hmm. So they're stored locally on my machines. They're stored in Dropbox. They're stored in iCloud. They're also stored in Google Photos. So like that is all over the place, um, and th- that all kind of works for me. Uh, I love having Time Machine on the Mac Pro. I'm not kidding you. In the last three weeks, uh, on two separate occasions, I've had to use Time Machine to get files from folders that are on my desktop. Because hmm. I put scratch files and like logic files and stuff like that. They just go on to my desktop, right? Because after about like two, about a, about two or three days, I never need a logic file again. They're just not needed. Right. I've I've never ever needed to go back to a logic file after like three months or whatever, even after <laughs> a week. Yeah. Once the show's out there, it's kind of that's all it ever needs to be. Um but there are times where I might need to grab an audio file or I accidentally deleted a couple of uh audio files from my desktop a couple of weeks ago, uh and I was able to go in and grab them both on separate occasions using Time Machine, which is great. Um, I've also as well, again, I don't know what's been happening to me recently in the last couple of weeks, uh, used Dropbox's fantastic uh, versioning. Yeah, it's really good. Like, it's just incredibly good. Um, And one of those occasions was simply just because it was easier for me to get that rather than ask someone to send me a file. Mm -hmm. Like, I had shared a file with someone. They had the file that I needed, but it, I deleted it from my folder because I didn't need it anymore. But it was just easy for me to just go in, log in, restore it. It downloads in like 20 seconds and I'm good to go again. Um, that is effectively my backup strategy. It is partly con- because of constraints that I have. Like if I had fast internet, then I would also be putting the Mac Pro onto Backblaze as well. But I just can't do that. Um because it's not possible for me to do it with with the internet situation that I have. Uh, so, and I also I don't want to be, I don't have a dock or anything for my for my MacBook Pro, uh, so I don't plug it in to put like to back it up to Time Machine. But my my Mac my MacBook Pro when I open Finder like Dropbox is I set that to open because that's where all my files are. Like, I don't put anything that I need anywhere on my MacBook Pro other than Dropbox. Like, it's just where my files go. So, I don't need to worry about it. I don't have any media stored on this machine. Like, it's not an issue for me. So, for the way that I look at it, 
the Dropbox is the great place for it. And then my Dropbox is backed up to the Time Machine because it's via the Mac Pro. Right, it's there as well. Yep, and it's also in Backblaze. Yeah, I mean, mean, I'm the same way with Dropbox. I mean, uh, besides Logic stuff, because I don't have a separate editing machine, my photos, major documents stuff are in Dropbox. Um, And uh, that's a really good point about their versioning systems. If you... uh, a file gets changed or, or removed or something, um, you can go back and find it. Now, it's not, uh, it doesn't last forever. You know, it's there is a limit to the extent of versioning Dropbox will do. But for the sort of situation you were in, like, hey, I just need to grab this thing. I knew it was here a couple of days ago, whatever. It's really good. And you can just restore it. Um, and it's um, it's pretty great. And it's, I think, relatively new. They haven't had it forever. But it's definitely a nice feature if you're looking at Dropbox as sort of a cloud storage provider. Yeah, and as Joe Steele said in the chat room, Dropbox versions aren't forever, which is true. And then he also right. corrected himself by saying, but they're on my time machine. Right, so I have this weird setup, right, that kind of via the two machines that I have, I feel pretty safe about my my data um, because... They are, yes, both in the same physical space. They actually sit next to each other. They are like, they are literally next to each other. At some yeah. points, they bang into each other. <laughs> uh, like, but the the data is kind of split across two different cloud services, uh, two SSDs, and a hard drive. Like, it kind of it all meets around. I don't have like the offsite bootable backup like you do, uh, but it's not an issue for me. I just need to wait for a very, very slow Dropbox download to occur. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's not the end of the world. Like, I can just wait for it. I can just um, set it over a couple of nights and I'll have everything back. Uh, it's, it is what it is. Considering the constraints that I have, this system works really well for me. No, I think, I think you're a good example of, like, of those three rules, I think you, I think you meet the criteria where it, um, you don't have an off-site, but it is redundant in a sense that the main data on your MacBook Pro is also somewhere else. So that's redundant to a degree, easy to manage, and, you know, it's testable. You've been testing it the last couple of weeks, as some might say. And so I think I think that's sort of, like, the key here. Like, no one, like, doing something is better than doing nothing. Like, if you look at my article and say, well, holy cow, I'm never going to be able to do that. Um, I'm just not going to do anything. Like, that's the wrong approach. It's all about finding what works for you in your budget or in what hardware you have available to you or Mike in your situation with your upload speed being abysmal. Like you can't do anything about that, unfortunately. And so you have to live within the constraints that it gives you. And uh, you've done that by doing an, a hotspot for recording on Skype. Um, but it's just a matter of fact, you just can't push gigabytes of stuff over to the cloud over that connection. And so I think... Things like Dropbox, well, I don't really like the idea of syncing uh, like software type stuff being a backup. In reality, it, it sort of is. Um, I've got issues with it, but it, it gets your data somewhere else. And that's really the key thing here. Where if, if your data is just on one machine, your data is temporary. It's the way it is. Because things fail, you drop a Coke on it, it gets stolen off the subway... Like, just the life happens to these devices. And um, so to have that data elsewhere, on the Mac at least, is not as necessarily easy as iOS, um, but it's it's definitely doable and definitely sustainable if you set it up correctly. 
So uh, completely. So my my, I said I had another question for you, which is iOS devices. Mm-hmm. Like, there's not really much you can do there. Yeah, I mean, uh, I back mine up to iCloud. I pay for like the lowest tier iCloud space because they're stingy. And uh, my iPad and iPhone back up to iCloud. Um, If I do a big software update, so like between versions or if I go to the beta, I will also, I will do a backup to iTunes and just set set that aside. Because if you say you upgrade from iOS 8 to iOS 9... And for some reason, you need to go back, which is very difficult. But if you do, uh, your iCloud backup might be might be iOS nine only. At times, that's been true. Other times, it hasn't been. And so, the only thing you really can do there is use iCloud and then use iTunes as needed. So, really surprises me that you don't have a biweekly or monthly regular backup to iTunes. I mean, for me, like, but so, and the reason I say this, I know because you, you know, yeah. I know what you're about to say that you don't generate a lot of data or create a lot of data on the device. But considering how much, how many different ways you back up what's on your Mac, like five different ways, basically, I am just surprised you yeah. don't at least well, do I, this. Every I also now and then. sync my devices, including purchases, to iTunes like a lot more than I think Apple wants me to. <laughs> um, and so, you know, if if I needed to restore from iCloud, then I could plug it into iTunes and sync my apps back over. And so, I'm sort of halfway there. Um, but yeah, I, I see what you're saying. I definitely see see what you're getting at. I'm worried that I'm causing some kind of nightmare now, and you're yeah, pl- you're, just you're open, reaching uh, for a USB cable. <laughs> open my to do list here and just make a repeating task iOS devices for me, it's kind of, and I do create a lot of data on them, but it's kind of just like, eh, it goes to iCloud, I'm sure it'll be fine. Yeah, you know, if I had to rebuild an iOS device from scratch, like, my photos all get sucked up to Dropbox automatically, so, and iCloud photo stream, even though I'm not using photos anymore, a uh, different topic. But um, if my iPad disappeared and my iCloud backup was three weeks old, like, it wouldn't be the end of the world. We're on the Mac, it might be. Depending on what I'm do, what I'm working on, so, um, so yeah, it would be nice to have, you know, some other alternatives for iOS. I don't even know what they would be. You know, like I don't see them saying, "Oh, if you have a Synology, you can back your iOS device up to your Synology." Like that's just not going to happen. But um, the iCloud backup is really good. I haven't really ever had issues out of it, so I'll give Apple uh, props there that what they what they have included, like on the Mac with Time Machine works pretty well most of the time. I haven't ever had big issues with either Time Machine or iCloud backup on iOS, so I think they're doing something right there. Is it weird that there is an iCloud for the Mac? Like iCloud backups for the Mac? Yeah, I don't know what they would back up. I mean, uh, most people's user folder is going to be, you know, tens of gigabytes, if not hundreds of gigabytes. And so... And maybe one day at this point, looking at, looking at their pricing page, like I don't know what they would charge for it. I mean, my home folder at the time of this article is probably the same. Yeah, about 310 gigs. That's a lot of data. And, and Apple is just not a big data company like Amazon or Backblaze or CrashPlan. It'd be great if they get there. I think they might one day, but I'm not surprised they haven't done it yet. 
Because, you know, they, they could at least just back up, like... Because they would know what media they wouldn't have to back up, right? Like, they could build a tool in OS ten. Sure. be like, we don't need to back up this movie. Right. Because no, absolutely. we know it's already in iTunes, you know? Agreed. Um, I don't know. I don't know. It's something to think about. But it is kind of just like a... We give you this thing that you can plug in other than that go elsewhere i think that's pretty how they think about it uh yeah i think so right have you got anything else i think about wraps it up for me i think that's it cool if you want to find our show notes for this week as we mentioned earlier go to relay.fm slash connected slash 48 if you want to find steven online he is at 512pixels.net don't forget forget to buy his t-shirt at the moment just a few more days left on that and he is at ismh on twitter i am at I Mike, I M Y K E. Um, thanks again to our sponsors for this week: Squarespace, Harry's, and Igloo. And we'll be back next time. Thank you so much for listening. Until then, say goodbye, sir. Adios. <laughs>